In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. And we see that ahead of us, the river has jumped its banks and is coming down the road at us. My dad sits there idling for a moment, wondering what he should do. He decides chains will probably be the best solution. Because chains really help in driving up river. James Menneker and his dad and brother get caught in a flash flood back in the 1980s on China Hot Springs Road. And Richard Coleman gets to see what Tanana River ice looks like from below. Then all of a sudden, I was looking up at a hole in ice, and it was going away. The hole was going away from me. And because it's Thanksgiving time, which is all about abundance, we're giving you a third story in today's episode absolutely free. Michael Deku tells the story of the time he almost died in a plane crash. You're welcome. And I said to myself, hmm, so this is how people die in a plane crash. I, I swear, that's what I said to myself. Thankful to be alive. Up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. They say that gratitude is the key to happiness, which explains why today's storytellers are some of the happiest guys I know. Each one of them shouldn't be here today, but I'm grateful that they are and glad to be able to share their cautionary tales with you. Story numero uno comes from James Menneker. He told this story at our very first Dark Winter Nights live event back in April of 2014. Here's James. Well, I was bummed. Uh, my, my whole family was bummed, actually. It was, it was 1984. I was 10 years old. I had two younger brothers. One was nine, one was five. And my dad had just bought a piece of property out off of 26 Mile Chena Hot Springs Road. And he was going to take us out there on a nice long weekend to explore the property. Uh, and, and we had been planning this for, for a month or so. And the week leading up to it, it rained nonstop. And, and we were all just feeling bummed. My mom especially, because she lived in a house full of four guys, and she was really excited about being able to have a nice, long, quiet weekend. The Thursday before we were gonna leave, uh, the rain stopped and the skies cleared, and my dad said, it is game on, we are, we are going tomorrow. We were so excited because we were, we were confident that the rain would not bother us anymore on this trip. So we load up into the truck, my dad's old red and white Dodge pickup truck that he had driven for 15 years. We, we load the canoe on top of it. We load it up with, with supplies and camping gear and everything you need for a long weekend of, of hiking and exploring. Uh, we put my dad in the driver's seat and the three of us get into the cab and off we go. And my mom is waving, smiling, tears of joy coming down her face as she has a pile of books that will not be interrupted. So as we drive out to Chena Hot Springs Road, we find our turnoff and we go down this winding, gravelly, bumpy road, the kind they, they still have there. Uh, and we come down to the river and we're like, this looks like a great place to set up camp. The, the river's, I, I won't lie, the river's high. It's swollen, but it looks like all we'll, we'll, we'll set up our camp for the evening and then we'll go across tomorrow. It'll be great. So we get our camp set up round about 4.35 in the afternoon. And we notice the river's higher than it used to be. 
Well, okay, so we'll just, we'll move farther up the road. That's, that's not a problem. By the time we get our camp taken down, the, the river is noticeably higher. So we move substantially farther up the road and, and get the tent up and get the fire going. And it keeps following us, this river. <laughs> we decide maybe we should find another camping spot. And so as we're taking down the tent, by the time we get camp taken down the second time and loaded into the truck, the fire has been put out by the river. Haste might be required here. So again, we load everything up into the truck. Dad gets in and drives. The three of us load into the, into the cab, and we start driving up the road to get back onto Chena Hot Springs Road, go find a better camping spot. We come around a bend, and we see that ahead of us, the river has jumped its banks and is coming down the road at us. <laughs> My dad sits there idling for a moment, wondering what he should do. He decides chains will probably be the best solution. Because chains really help in driving up river. And so he gets out and he puts on the chains, muttering to himself. We three are sitting in there like, this is not what we were expecting to see. So as, as dad gets all, all chained up, he's like, okay, boys, here we go. We start driving up the road. Pretty soon we're driving up the river. The water's coming up and he tells my, my uh, brother, John, who's the nine-year-old sitting closest to the window, okay, son, I want you to climb out the window and sit on the cab. And, and when th debris comes down river at us, I want you to push it out of the way. <laughs> So here's my brother, John, kicking his feet on the truck, pushing out sticks and, and, and making sure that nothing torpedoes us. And we're, we're going, we're driving up river. Finally, we start to float. My dad realizes the chains may not be able to save him this time and says, abandoned truck, it's time to go. So we climb out the windows, he takes the canoe off of the top of the truck, <laughs> sets it onto the road slash river. We put the boys into it, we put whatever supplies we can in the back, and we start paddling up road. <laughs> and we watch the truck go down behind us. So we're going up the rapids and, and paddling upstream. And, and we're going up and down and around, and, and we come to a high point where it's dry, and my dad decides this would be a good place to, to camp and, and have, a little, have a little break. So we have a nice little view of our truck disappearing under the water as we make our hot chocolate and, and uh, make sure everybody's well accounted for. And then we decide, no, we should go home. So we load into the canoe and go down road again, Finally, we come to dry land, and we just leave the canoe, we leave all the supplies, and we start to walk back to Fairbanks. Uh, it is, by this time, it's 10.30 p.m. or so. It's dark, there's, there's nothing going on. And so we are walking down Chena Hot Springs Road with not a car in sight. Finally, we come up to one of the general stores. It's closed, but my dad decides I'm gonna make a phone call. So he goes and pounds on the door, and light comes on. They open up, and he explains the situation, and they say, of course, you can, you can call. The phone rings at home, and my mother, 
who has been giggling to herself all day and reading her mystery novels in her pajamas in bed, gets the call that, hi, honey. Um, so we lost the truck and we need a ride. We're coming home. Love you. Bye. So my mom comes out and gets us. We all load into the car. It is a very quiet ride home. So we get home, everybody collapses. A few days later, we head on out to uh, try and salvage the truck, see what'll happen. So we get some friends, get a winch, and we go and we find the truck and we, we hook up to it and pull it out. They drain the fluids, they put new oil, they put new gas in. My dad drives it home and drives it for the next 10 years. <laughs> and that's why I hate camping to this day. <laughs> Thank you very much. James Meneker. He shared that story at our very first live event back in April of 2014. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Thankful to Be Alive episode. I'm Rob Prince. Our next storyteller has a lot to be grateful for because he basically should have died three times in one weekend, or what we call the Alaskan hat trick. Richard Coleman also shared this story at our very first live event back in Fairbanks in 2014. I have an old Athabascan friend that I've known for 50 years. Lives across the Tananaw River from Fairbanks. And um, we'll call him Howard. <laughs> <laughs> I met him about 50 years ago. And so one day, not too long ago, I uh, get a call. And uh, will I come down to his camp and help him slide his uh, skiff into the river? At springtime, uh, the river ice has went out. Not many ice cubes coming down, and everything will be okay. So I'd run into this before, and I'm thinking to myself, now how much trouble can I get into? The ice is out, it's gone, and nice sunny day. So I tow my boat down to the river, chin a pump landing, put it in, and uh, motor on down to his place on the south side of the Tananaw. The Tananaw River is, uh, it doesn't make any difference. If it's low and slow, high and fast, frozen, it's a semi-dangerous place, and if you don't do things just right, things go wrong. So I get down to his camp, and uh, he's standing on the riverbank waiting, got a couple of bags ready to go to town. He's been standing there for 30 days <laughs> waiting for the ice to uh, go out so he can and he's ready to go to town. So uh, we get a couple uh, poles and pry his little skiff loose from the ground and froze down still. And he gets on the back of the boat pushing, and I get up front pulling on the boat rope. And we head down the riverbank, and there's a lot of shore ice. So we're uh, sliding the boat out on the river, and uh, did all of a sudden. I was looking up at a hole in ice, and it was going away. The hole was going away from me. And I, the water was so cold, my brain would only register, holy crap, it's cold. <laughs> and I kept, uh, over and over, I was saying that in my brain, and I, and I knew I had to concentrate and do something, but I had to overcome this, holy crap, it's cold, that's running through my brain. and. So the, uh, I'm looking around under the ice, and it's winter, 
winter, the ice water clears up a little. It's kind of blue-gray under there. It's not muddy anymore. And so I'm looking up at the ice. The hole's going away from me. And uh, there's kind of air cavities, and a, I could see a lot of detail going on. And, and I told myself I got to get doing something because I'm going down the river. And uh, I started swimming, trying to make it back up to that hole. Never had touched bottom. And when I started swimming, I realized I had uh, the boat rope that I had been pulling on was still in my hand. And from then on, I switched from, holy crap, it's cold, to hang on to the rope. <clears throat> and I concentrated on the rope, and I come back up the rope, popped out of the, the hole in the ice, and maybe I'd been in the water for 10 or 15 seconds, but I had no muscle control. I just didn't have anything left in, in just seconds. I couldn't get myself out of the water, and Howard knew that he wasn't going to be able to just reach and grab me and pull me out. And he was up at the top of the, the hole with the little boat on top of the ice. And so he shoved the, uh, took an oar and shoved the boat over against me. And I, with that, I could had something to push on and I, I did push myself out on top of the ice. So I had survived that, but I was panicky. And uh, I had a dry jacket hanging on a bush that I had left behind before we started this. So I stripped off my shirt and put on this dry fleece jacket I had and immediately started feeling a little bit better. Howard's got his cabin all locked up, stoves off, and he's ready to go to town. So I said, well, Howard, I said, I'm feeling better. I said, it's only two miles up to the uh, boat landing. I said, I can make that. Let's just take off. So we slid his little boat into the river, got the motor running. I did the same thing with mine, and away we go up the Tananaw River and little open boats. And I immediately started feeling very good. I was kind of a glow, was very happy to be alive. It was dawning on me how close a call I'd had in not recognizing what was the matter with me. So I get up, both of us, get our two boats up to the Chena pump landing. Howard wanted to take his boat on up the Chena to town. And so he went on, give me a wave and went on up the river and I turned mine into the boat landing. When I got to the bank, I, uh, I drove my boat about halfway out of the water and I stood up to get out. When I stood up, I just fell over backwards into the rocks. and. My legs wouldn't work, and I had hyperthermia. And um, I woke up sometime later. I'd been—I knew I'd been unconscious. My waist down, my legs were waving around in the river, and my top half was out of the water, and nobody around. And uh, so I checked myself out. Decided things weren't broke. Couldn't find anything really wrong with me, and so I did. I got up and got in my truck and got the heater running and got it. Things warmed up a little and got to feeling better again. So I uh, loaded up my boat and went home. Heater running all the way home, and so I got home and I was telling my wife the story. 
And uh, she had, over the years, got used to things like this. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so I changed clothes, got some dry clothes on, and I went out the rest of the day, worked in the backyard the rest of the day. And uh, everything was cool, and I, next morning I got up, and I'm sitting on the toilet. I reached over to get some toilet paper, and my right arm just went off 180 degrees off in the blue there, and just, it wouldn't do anything I wanted it to, and my right side was paralyzed, and I knew something was uh, haywire. And, Got my wife, and she uh, run me down to the emergency room, and it didn't take them but a few minutes of the emergency room, and they said, well, you've banged your head, <clears throat> you're bleeding inside your brain cavity, and pressure's building up, and you've got to get to Anchorage. Uh, we're gonna medevac you to Anchorage right now, and it was just minutes they had me on a jet to Providence Hospital. Once I got to Providence Hospital, they uh, kept me in a coma for four days, observing if the pressure was going to go down, if the bleeding was going to stop. And so four days later, I uh, came to, and my first recollection was that my youngest son had just walked in the door to uh, take me home. He drove down to Anchorage and to, going to drive me home. And I was madder than hell because I had thought I had just arrived at Anchorage and Providence is kicking me out of the hospital because <laughs> nothing could be done for me. <clears throat> and I was really upset. And so I rode back to Fairbanks and I'm bedridden. I was laying, my head was in bad shape and I was laying flat on the bed for days. And I was having hallucinations and thought I was losing my mind. Had no idea what was wrong with me. So my wife rushes me to my regular doctor here in Fairbanks again, and he looks at my chart, and he says, uh, no, he says, you're not losing your mind. He says, uh, you're, you're in drug withdrawals. He says, they, they gave you so much dope in the Anchorage Hospital that uh, you're having withdrawals. So come to find out, during those four days I'd been in the hospital, I had got violent, and I was too big, and nurses couldn't handle me. Everybody was afraid of me. And they'd call my wife at the hotel where she was staying and ask her what to do, and she'd say, give him more dope. <clears throat> so that's what happened. My doctor told me, he says, you're having drug withdrawals. Uh, you're going to be okay. And as soon as he said that, I knew immediately that that's what the case was, and I started improving. But this all took like two months. I was down for two months. So one day I'm feeling pretty good, and I called Howard. He had never, he had never known of this story. He had never heard anything, knew anything was wrong with me. I don't think. And I called Howard, and I said, "Howard, do you always put the white man out in front?" <laughs> so that's my story. Richard Coleman. He shared that story at our 2014 live event in Fairbanks. Our bonus storyteller today is above average in many ways. Unfortunately, when it came to flying, he was extremely average. Mike Deku shared this near-death plane crash story at our April 2014 live event in Fairbanks. 
one day a friend of mine and I decided, you know what, there's this awesome fishing place that we need to go into. So we did some basic pilotage, we have our maps and we're flying north of here and we were looking around, looking around, looking around and lo and behold we couldn't find the place. It's like, well it's this river and there's this, supposed to be this strip there and there's like awesome grayling fishing and blah blah blah. And it's like, well, crap, we can't find the place. So it's like, well, you know what, let's just turn around. Well, you know, sometimes fate strikes at the wrong time. And if you can picture this, we're flying. And I said, well, let's just get out of here, you know. So I started to turn to the left. And I just happened to go like this and look behind me. And it's like, you know what, that looks like a strip back there along the river. I wonder if that's the place. So it's like, well, let's go check it out. And of course, you know, we're fat, dumb, and happy, so we go in there and um, made a pass over, and it's like, you know what, I think this is the place. So let me set the stage for you. Come in and make the pass, and what you had is, on the left-hand side, you kind of had a hill with spruce trees, and then you had the overgrown strip, I mean, majorly overgrown strip, and then the river that parallels it on the right-hand side and kind of winds its way over. So we do one pass over and it looks, well, it looks okay. And at that time, I had practiced a lot of short field takeoffs and landings. And so the plane at the time, just to familiarize yourself, had manual flaps. So in between your, the seats here, you had your handle for the flaps and you could literally dump 40 degrees of flaps and you could literally fall like a rock and so I can land that plane very very slow and very very short. So we did one more pass and it's like okay it looks good we kind of lined it up and went ahead and landed and we bumped our way through and there's this high grass and of course we're shredding the grass with the prop as we're going and everything's cool and then we come to a stop and it's like okay good deal we're here. So we get out, everything looks fine. We go fishing for a few hours. And it's finally like, well, I guess we're ready to get out of here. So it's like, okay. And I had, I had a little bit of, in the back, you know, sometimes in the back of your head, it's like, you know what? I don't know if I should have came to this place. <laughs> but it's like, I'm looking at my friend, and it's like, it's too late, and we have to get the hell out of here. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is we'll set up for a classic, what we'd call a short field takeoff. So, of course, this is a small aircraft, and anytime you're flying small aircraft, you're really concerned about the weight that you have. So I said to my friend, look, do you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Literally, go now. You know that peanut butter and jelly sandwich you have left over? Throw it out, right? I mean, this is how concerned you are. So you got to picture this. We're at. We had the plane at the end, at the one end of the strip, and we we basically turned it around. And what we did is we pushed the plane back into the weeds, literally. So the tail, the butt end, is literally sticking out. You know, sticking into the weeds. So it's like, okay, we're set. Start her up. And the procedure for a short field takeoff basically is. You give full power, you make sure everything looks okay, full power, you're holding the brakes down as toe brakes, hold the brakes down, and of course it's, it's a little intimidating because you're standing still and you're at full power, right? So, you know, one of these deals. 
And I let go of the brakes. It's like, okay, here we go. I pull that, th- pull that yoke back a little bit. Here we go. And we're rumbling down. We're rumbling down. I'm watching my speed indicator. And I start to rotate up, and we just start to climb out. And suddenly it felt like the hand of God comes, and boom, hits us. Big wind, wind shear, shakes us, and then the world stops. And I said to myself, hmm, so this is how people die in a plane crash. (laughs) I I swear, that's what I said to myself. We were able to come in, and when we came in, I kind of flattened the glide path out. And remember, the river's over here. There's a bunch of boulders, different stuff, rocks. And basically what happened is we sheared the gear off. The right wing clipped the river. This is how close we were. Pulled that wing up like this, and we finally came to a halt. It sheared the prop off, sheared the gear off, and we came to a... To a uh, a uh, position with the nose, severe nose down position like this. And at that point, I looked over at my friend and um, he wasn't responding. He was kind of slumped over. And I thought, oh my God, this is, how am I going to explain this? He's broken his neck. This is not going to be good. Well, subsequently he didn't. He got kind of shook up for a second. And we were literally so close to the river that if if we went ahead and he tried to open his door, he would literally have gone into the river. So we were able to get out of the plane. We went ahead and um, got to the point where we tried to contact folks in terms of of, uh, getting somebody to come and get us and, and, quote, rescue us. So we set the ELT, which is the emergency locating transmitter, and tried to pick some folks up. And uh, I was going ahead and and giving... um, uh, calls, mayday calls on the uh, on the radio. After about half an hour of this, suddenly, like the voice of God appeared, and this voice said over the radio, "Aircraft in distress. This is Northwest 85. Go ahead." Well, who this was was a Northwest Airlines pilot going over the pole. And I explained our, our predicament. He called Anchorage Center. They sent out the, the Civil Air Patrol, et cetera. And they also sent out one of our local agencies to come and get us. Well, about seven hours passed, and the local agency came out and got us with a helicopter. And there were two people on the copter in the front, the pilot and the other person. So we sat in a helicopter. They asked for paperwork. And they didn't, basically, it was kind of strange because they didn't say anything to us. So we're whoop, 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 all the way back to Fairbanks, treetop level, landed in a special location in Fairbanks, which is, happens to be on Pega Road. And uh, <laughs> so I don't have to go into details on that. But here's the thing. We la- so we land there, and there wasn't a word spoken to us. And my friend and I are looking at each other like this, like, wow, this is really bizarre, you know? It's like, what's going to happen next? Well, the, the pilot shuts down the helicopter. We hear it spool down. These, tie, these two guys, basically, one on each side, they looked at us, and then they did this. They walked away. so we're looking at each other going what is the story here that's like just totally bizarre 
postscript. I'm reading uh, sometime later a copy of uh, Private Pilot magazine. And the, um, the issue had to do with times when folks usually have an accident. How many hours, on average, do people go? And there's certain times in a pilot's life, if you will, where they have accidents. And I'm um, reading the article, and it's like, wait a second. How many hours? Wait a second. Let me get the logbook. How many hours? I hit it on right. I hit it almost right on the nose. Four hundred hours. There it is. There's your average pilot. Thanks very much. Mike Deku. He shared that story at our April 2014 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks so much for listening to Dark Winter Nights: True Stories from Alaska, the Thankful to Be Alive episode. Today's episode was edited by myself, Rob Prince, audio recording by John Hoff of Alaska Universal Productions, story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. <laughs>